Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley. You're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. You're very welcome to this latest episode. It carries on from before where we were talking about Poland. Now we're talking about the rest of Eastern Europe so that nobody feels left out. Another very big episode, because those Eastern Europeans do need a lot of time, which just goes to show even further, in case you didn't know, that this is a listener-supported podcast, and we're able to delve into these things in such detail because you guys support this podcast so well. Whether you're supporting us for free, simply by sharing stuff, or spreading the word, telling your friends, telling your history friends, etc., or whether you're supporting us on Patreon, from as little as a dollar a month, you guys will get some pretty cool stuff back. Whether you're doing any of that, or just a little bit of that, thanks so much, because your support goes a long way, and it helps to make sure that I can justify doing this as my job. Think about Eastern Europe and the Paris Peace Conference. When do you even hear anything about that? The answer is, you really don't hear very much. When people talk about the Treaty of Versailles, they talk about Germany, and that's about it. But there was a lot of stuff going on, 
at this point a hundred years ago. And it's my duty to tell you exactly what was going down. But yes, as I said, for one dollar a month you can get some pretty cool stuff. Do you want to know more about Louis XIV's era and how he fought wars? Check out the 10-part series Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, which came out in summer 2017 and which I've since released for one dollar patrons and above. If you're interested in that kind of thing, check that stuff out. Maybe be really cheeky about it and sign up for one dollar a month and then stop paying as soon as you Get your fill of Louis XIV's arms and armies. It is up to you what you do. But if you do decide to stick around for $2, you can get these episodes without me talking to you at the beginning and without any other ads that might come to you through Acast or anything else. And you can also access the scripts. So that's nice too. For $5 a month, you get an hour of extra content every month, which at the moment is supposed to mean 1956, but because Zach Twomley started a new job and had to deal with the delegation game, and also had to breathe a few times too, because, well, apparently that's important, I don't know. Because of all that stuff, he didn't have very much time to actually record 1956. So that's going to come out in a few days. But as you'll soon see, the schedule for what was happening a hundred years ago was very jam-packed as well. So we nearly have an episode every second day or so throughout February. So you're about to see exactly what I've been doing for all these weeks, how much research I've been putting into things, and how hard I've been working exactly, because thanks to your guys' monies, I'm able to justify doing that. We are nearly at 300 patrons, which is pretty cool, because at the end of February, we are celebrating two years on Patreon, so in the space of two years, we got 300 people supporting this podcast monetarily. Of course, we've added some more exciting stuff in there too. If you want to pay that extra little bit and do $6 a month, you can play the delegation game, which is crazy and ridiculous, but also very exciting. Because you can send an avatar that you create, could be a real person or a not real person, and then I will factor them into the discussions that are happening. Every single Friday, I narrate their exploits and what they get up to, and you can join the fun in the Discord chats that are being set up, or in the Facebook Messenger chats that are already there. And of course, join that Facebook group for the delegates too. There's a whole load of stuff going on, guys. When Diplomacy Fells podcast is not just what you listen to here, but if you just like to listen here and that's that, then by all means, do that. A huge thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
You're listening to their Sign Anniversary Project episode 31. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, delegates, all to the Versailles Anniversary Project episode 31. The Polish case was an ongoing quest, devouring patience and attention, and dragging on unresolved for several years before a full-blown war between Soviet and Pole simplified matters somewhat by spring 1921. That is all still to come on our timeline, but in the last episode we did look at the Polish case in detail, from A to Z, from beginning to end really, and leaving out that Polish-Soviet war, of course, perhaps that's deliberate. Who knows, maybe I'll revisit it in the future. But the Allies hoped for, and were relieved to note, that the resolution of the other Eastern problems was a less elusive dream. Just because the Poles were all in flux at this time didn't mean that the Poles' Slav peers were also in flux as well. Romanians, Czechs and Yugoslavs were not easily pleased, but they were at least established in stable boxes by the end of the Paris Peace Conference, which was more than could be said for Poland. So this episode charts the resolution which was made for those three powers, starting with the Romanians, as they actually presented their case, first to the Supreme Council on the 31st of January and 1st of February, so it seems only right to begin with them. Representing Romania was the master of alternative history and fan of his own appearance, Ioan Bratianu, who had served on and off as the country's premier for several years. On the 31st of January, after a long saga over the mandates issue, the Big Five were finally ready, it was said, to hear the cases of the smaller Eastern powers. After having issued numerous warnings in the weeks before regarding aggressive expansion, at odds with demographics or state rights, it was time for Yuan Bratianu to face the music of his country's seizure of Transylvania, the historically contested region between Hungary and Romania, not to mention overcome the disgust and irritation which he tended to arouse in those he came into contact with, above all Harold Nicholson, our guy on the inside, who, let's just say, was not a big fan of Mr. Bratianu. It was quite a challenge, but Bratianu was by no means the only man who had to step up. The first week of February 1919 was awash with deputations from these small and hopeful nations, and expectations among them were all high. It sounds like a recipe for disaster, but it was also a recipe for a fascinating podcast script. So, let's delve right into it. When examining the petitions of the Eastern Powers to the Paris Peace Conference, we are drawn to Yuan Bratianu's performance on the 31st of January 1919. Bratianu's list of demands was as long as his list of grievances, yet he did have one practical advantage, which simultaneously actually eroded his moral standing among the estimation of his allies. Romanian soldiers had taken advantage of the power vacuum, created in late 1918, to seize the bulk of what Bratianu now desired to be given to Romania by law. The most pressing of these crises was found in the Banat, a strip of territory between Romania and Yugoslavia. In late 1918, Romania had tried to seize the Banat, but had found that the Serbs were already there. When Bretianu found that they wouldn't budge, he instituted a propaganda campaign against the Serbs, accusing them of all sorts of crimes, to which the Serbs responded by claiming they had been told to move into the region by the Allied General Staff, and that they were protecting the region from bandits. This facilitated a crisis which had the Allies at the centre, and which was at the forefront of Bratianu's mind, during his presentation on the afternoon of the 31st of January. But 
maybe you want to know the more important answer to the question of what exactly the Banat was. I mean, we're not from the area, we don't know what all this stuff looked like, so what was it? And why was it so important for Romania to have it? Bratianu was on hand with an explanation, so don't worry, dear listeners. It captured the irresistible case which Romania had for annexing the region, and of course, didn't really address the concerns of Romania's neighbours. In any case, Bratianu's case is worth examining, and is detailed in the minutes of the Paris Peace Conference for that day. So let's read from those minutes now. As Bratianu said, The Banat is not a geographical term. It is in reality a real geographical region, and also a real political province forming at the present day, as it has done throughout the ages, a complete and indivisible whole. It is, in fact, difficult to conceive that any state can claim or accept one portion only of the country, and still more difficult to expect that, once in possession of that portion, it would be able to withstand the necessity of soon claiming the whole country. The waterways which surround the Banat on three sides form a natural frontier which bounds a region of plains on the west and mountainous district to the east, which are closely interconnected. It is the plain of the Banat which yields the necessary food supplies for the inhabitants of the mountains, whilst the people of the hill country send the plain dwellers their wealth of timber and minerals. The rich plains, which are comparatively sparsely populated, draw their indispensable supplies of labour and settlers from the mountains. The plain and the mountains, thus, cannot exist apart from one another. In case you're wondering whether anyone listened to Yuan Bratianu's pleas for keeping the Banat whole, you should know that today the Banat is divided between three concerned countries, Romania, Serbia and Hungary, which kind of makes a lie of Bratianu's claim that one must hold all of it or none of it. But the region also remains absolutely stuffed full of every national identity imaginable, from the Roma people to Jews to Germans. The Banat was, in other words, a perfect example of the kind of headaches which Eastern Europe presented. It was a melting pot, impossible to divide equally or fairly, and impossible to divide based on the explanation of one concerned party. Bradianu insisted that the question was not a difficult one at all. Simply give it to Romania, the only allied power in the region. Considering how content Bratianu was to gloss over the complications and controversies implicit in ignoring the other powers, it is little wonder that he was so badly regarded. The Banat, of course, represented only one of the claims that he was making for Romania. Bessarabia, Transylvania and Bukovina were also part of Bratianu's vision for a greater Romania. The historian Arthur Walworth provides an interpretation of Bratianu's behaviour which helps us unwrap the reason why so many found Bratianu so insufferable. Walworth said, Bratianu reached Paris on January 13th. He sought out the American specialists and invited three to dinner on the evening of the last day of the month between two sessions of the Supreme Council in which he presented his nation's claims. He complained that the council was a sleeping judge, putting Romania on trial. He described a talk the day before with House, who had received him with enforced courtesy, as his most cheering experience in Paris. However, his immoderate claims, reflecting promises made by the Allies in 1916, did not evoke any encouragement from the specialists. Wilson was already prejudiced against Bratianu's case by military aggression on the part of the Romanians. Moreover, when Bratianu came before the council on the last day of January, the president took a strong dislike to him. 
Returning to the attack the next day, the Romanian premier gratuitously insulted the members of the council and claimed everything promised to Romania by the Treaty of 1916, and Bessarabia too. He indicated that he was not averse to using force, if necessary, to rule the Hungarians in Transylvania. At the same time, he played upon his favourite theme. He promised, if given a free hand, to wipe out the serious and contagious disease of Bolshevism. Walworth's estimations are backed up by the opinions of those that sat in the same room as Bratianu for the two days, most notably Harold Nicholson, perhaps his greatest foe, or at least his most biting and hilarious. Following the first day of Bratianu's talk on the afternoon of the 31st of January, Nicholson took to his diary to write the following entry, which I have bulked up with some references, because Nicholson sometimes talked about people as though we know everyone's name and role at all times. So, let's go with it. Nicholson said, Bratianu, with historionic detachment, opens his case. He is evidently convinced that he is a greater statesman than any present. A smile of irony and self-consciousness recurs from time to time. He flings his head in profile. He makes a dreadful impression. Balfour rises, yawns, sighs, and steps past his own armchair to ask me for our line of partition in the Banat. Balfour shows it, this map, with marked indifference to the Italian foreign minister, Sanino. Serb delegate and future Yugoslav premier, Milenko Radomir Veznic, replies to the Romanian case. Veznic replies well and modestly. He attacks the secret treaty of 1916. Then, Bratianu again. President Wilson gets pins and needles and paces up and down upon the soft carpet, kicking black and tidy boots. He then goes and sits himself down for a moment among the Yugoslavs. Then we all disappear again through the double doors. General feeling is that Bratianu has done badly. That evening, in a bid to charm his audience further, Bratianu hosted what Nicholson brutally described as a hateful dinner. Bratianu didn't do much better the second day, and with the Yugoslavs in attendance once more, it is worth considering the possibility that he was beginning to feel the pressure and irritation of those in the room. Bratianu was allowed to speak after other issues were run through, with the Allies managing to reach a solution to the Tetian problem following a Byzantine degree of compromise and partition in the region. The Romanian premier began with a rundown of Romanian history during the war, painting a picture of self-sacrifice and noble displays of Christian virtue as he did so. Bratianu then moved into shakier territory when he talked about the Treaty of Alliance signed in mid-August 1916 between the Allies and Romania. The whole issue was that the Allies were of the view that this treaty, and all that it promised, was made void by Romania's exit from the war in May 1918. But Bratianu, if you'll recall from what we noted in earlier episodes, well, he disagreed with this analysis because he claimed that Romania had never really left the war in its own accord because a puppet government had been installed and he had been ousted as premier. Because the peace with the central powers was illegitimate, the promises which had been made to Romania therefore still stood. Bratianu was only asking for what was his according to a pre-existing treaty, but one can see why this would be contentious and controversial, even if Bratianu apparently could not. Bratianu then made much of the importance of maps, a point we'll examine in a little bit, to underline Romania's claims to Transylvania and the justice of that quest. A simple tactic was followed in regards to Bukovina and Bessarabia. He produced maps which supposedly highlighted the ethnic case that Romania had, and Bratianu loudly proclaimed that these people had already elected their own assemblies which had voted for union with Romania. 
All of this was a little bit too convenient for Lloyd George, who said that he was under the impression that not all minorities had been able to vote in these assemblies, and that it was important that their voices were taken into account. Bratianu then shot back that he didn't understand the Prime Minister, that Romania had occupied Transylvania, and that the war had demonstrated Romania's suitability for ruling the region. The Serbs, Bratianu said, were committing atrocities in the Banat, which he didn't want to mention yesterday, but he felt compelled to mention now. Lloyd George warned that the Serbs must be present to defend themselves if they were to be talked about so negatively, so, rather than let them talk, Bratianu just changed the subject. Once he had left the room, divergences of opinion presented themselves, with the French and Italians, interestingly enough, supporting Romania, and Woodrow Wilson and Lloyd George opposing Bratianu. What reason could the French and Italians have for supporting the insufferable Romanian Premier? Well, in the Italian case, they were worried that if the treaty with Romania was discounted, then the Italians' secret treaty of London from 1915 would be discounted as well. Clemenceau's interests were more straightforward. He simply wanted to empower Romania so that he could keep an eye on the Bolsheviks, but also restrain the Germans. You might recall this cordon sanitaire idea where Clemenceau planned to just surround Russia with a load of Eastern European states, which included Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, etc., that would be able to stop the spread of Bolshevism. Unsurprisingly, the conclusion reached was that a committee on Romania should be formed, with two representatives from each of the five powers, with power then to consult with Romanians and make lasting decisions. Everybody was probably glad just to get Bratianu out of their hair. One figure certainly in this camp was Harold Nicholson, who wrote in his diary again following Bratianu's second performance on the 1st of February with fantastically brutal prose saying, In afternoon to Supreme Council again to hear Bratianu continue. He says that this is the second time he had had to face a viva examination in Paris. The first time was when he took his degree in law. On that occasion, my examiners knew more than I did, he said. What a silly ass. He is on this occasion very verbose and unconvincing, and very Balkan. Suddenly we are all bustled out of the room by Clemenceau. I am in terror as I have given Balfour all my maps and papers and he has a trick of losing official documents. Sir Maurice Hankey, however, recovers them for me. In the evening, a dinner offered by the Romanian colony in Paris. Oh, I hate dinner parties. Nicholson was by no means the only figure to develop a profound dislike for the Romanian premier. Wilson's feelings towards Bratianu had been affected negatively by the seizure by Romanian forces of Hungarian and former Russian lands, and he was also unimpressed by Bratianu's personality and negotiating style. These strong feelings meant that Wilson did his level best to avoid meeting Bratianu, but since he couldn't put him off forever, he ended up delegating the undesirable task of meeting the man to Edward House, in between reminding the leader just how much everyone missed him in the Council of Ten Meetings, and that appear had remarked to House's immense surprise that my moral influence would have a good effect. House added expressions that underlined how busy he was, largely in helping to craft the League of Nations. House did not harbour any strong feelings towards Bratianu, labelling him a diplomat of the old and perhaps not too admirable school at one point, but otherwise staying silent on the Romanian Premier's character. Considering his workload, though, and the potentially difficult nature of the meeting, Edward House requested that a man called Stephen Bunsal join him. We haven't met Stephen Bunsal yet, but he was an American journalist, diplomat, translator and colonel. 
1946, he wrote the book Suitors and Supplicants, which analysed the experiences of the small nations of the Paris Peace Conference, and the account was bolstered by his actual presence during much of these negotiations. Stephen Bunsal was regularly in contact with House, and he was thus not far from these tense meetings. Bunsal gives us a good picture of Bratianu's fractured relationship with the Americans, which only worsened as February bled into March, to the point that Bunsal was writing in mid-March 1919 that One of President Wilson's marked dislikes is his aversion for Bratianu, the beetle-browed Prime Minister of Romania with the notorious Byzantine background. Up to the present, he has avoided the tete-a-tete with him which the Bucharest leader so ardently desires. He puts him off with messages through house. Tell him, says the President, that the frontiers we are tracing are temporary, certainly not final, and that later on, in a camera moment and informed by longer study, the League of Nations will intervene to adjust provisional settlements, which may be found to be imperfect. Last week, however, the Colonel said to me, Bratianu insists upon an interview with me and I do not think it wise to put him off any longer. I have every reason to think that it will be stormy, and I want you to be present. The Romanian ambassador is coming with him, but I prefer to have you to interpret. House's apprehension was correct, and Bunsal records the stormy meeting between himself and House on the one side, and Bratianu and the Romanian ambassador on the other. The interview was more stormy, and the language of the Bucharest bull, as he is sometimes called, was even more outrageous than had been anticipated. Little Misu, the Romanian ambassador, did what he could to soften the words of his chief, and in asides to me was often apologetic, but it is difficult for a mere ambassador to stand up against his chief, a prime minister. Bratianu's blast began by a violent and yet by no means untrue account of how after entering the war, Romania had been let down by the promising allies. Solemn pledges were given that a great Russian army would come to our aid, and that, as the Germans would be held by intensive operations on the Western Front, the invading army of Mackensen, the Austrian commander at the time, would not be a force larger than we could cope with. Now what happened? The Grand Duke did not move, and on the Western Front the Allies went to sleep. An unholy calm settled down on that sector, and Mackensen drew from there all the divisions he needed to overwhelm our gallant resistance. But mark you, we have learned our lesson. It has cost us the complete devastation of our country, So for its restoration, we are demanding, naturally, something more substantial than verbal pledges. We know now what these are worth. It might be interesting to note that before Bratianu had even presented his case to the Allies on the 31st of January and 1st of February, he had noted the following to one American official. I have the reputation of being a very bad character, who is always making trouble by trying to secure too much. Therefore, I have been able to show the Allies that... After all, I am not such a bad man, and I've preferred to ignore things about which I might have complained. This commitment or declaration that Bratianu was trying to turn over a new leaf or something was subsequently ignored, as we now know, judging by his performance on the 31st of January and 1st of February, because Bratianu went on to criticise virtually every aspect of the Allied decisions, plague them incessantly for satisfaction of Romania's reimagined rights, and when this failed, he demanded repeated audiences with the American president. In Bratianu's defence, he had never been brought before them on the 31st of January to make a concrete case. Instead, by bringing Romania and Serbia together into the same room, the Allies hoped to preserve some modicum of friendship between them, ironically enough, and to prevent any degeneration of the situation in the Banat. It wasn't hard to imagine the Balkans degenerating into war. It had done so relatively recently, 
as Bratianu never ceased to remind the Allies, and the Balkans had been a hotbed of friction even before Franz Ferdinand fell to a Serbian gun. The Banat discussion on the 31st of January contained far too many twists and turns to detail in full here, but it provided the Serbs, consequently the Yugoslavs, with the best and so far only chance to present their case and their state to the Paris Peace Conference. They came across as much more natural and even-handed than did Bratianu, who appeared grasping and arrogant at the best of times. The Serb and Romanian reps launched jibes at each other, with Bratianu refusing to consider a plebiscite for the Banat and refusing to recognise the result if it went ahead. The Serb delegate and future premier of the country, Veznic, came across better according to Harold Nicholson, who noted that the Treaty of Alliance between Romania and the Allies was void, and that he was sorry Bratianu didn't like Serbs being in the Banat, but they had been invited there by the Allies, and if Romania wanted it so much, she should have moved on it earlier. Bratianu provided the following rebuke to this. The work which the conference was now called upon to carry out shall be compared to that of an inter-allied commission, had such a commission then been possible, appointed in the time of Charlemagne to adjudicate the question of the Rhine. Had the commission at that time decided that the Rhine should form the boundary between Germany and France, what untold benefits would have been conferred on the world? What influence such a decision might have had on the events leading up to the present war? The conference was now in the same way settling the future of Eastern Europe. But the Serbs did have the final word, and although their efforts to claim a third of the Banat took the Allies by surprise, sympathy with Serbia, and consequently Yugoslavia, was high, a fact which the Serbs planned to take full advantage of. Veznic was encouraged by Nikola Pesic to ask for as much as possible, because Serbia's wartime record and sacrifices spoke for themselves, whereas Romania's were confused and incoherent. An unlikely ally of the Romanians happened to be the Italians, who, as we saw, opposed the deconstruction of the Romanian Alliance Treaty out of fear that the Allies would then treat their Treaty of London similarly. In addition, Rome had begun to view Yugoslavia as their natural rival in the Balkans and Adriatic, and valued any opportunity to oppose Serb aggrandizement with Romanian help. It must be marvelled at that in spite of the uninspiring reception he received, and in spite of the strong feelings he evoked in others, normally negative, Bratianu was probably the most successful statesman of Eastern Europe in the end. He actually got pretty much everything that he wanted, and he played upon the disagreements of the Allies, and he made fewer public appearances, while he worked hard in the background. It certainly helped his case that in March, Hungary was overcome by a Bolshevik revolution that effectively placed Transylvania in his hands. The Allies were hardly going to argue that Bratianu should hand Transylvania back to Bolsheviks. Bratianu was the ally to the West and democracy which the Allies never knew they needed, but the Hungarian incident seemed to bring it all home. Bratianu's fortunes were effectively saved by the communist takeover of Hungary, and by the end of the Paris Peace Conference, Romania became the second largest state in Eastern Europe. Its population swelled from 7.5 million in 1914 to 17 and a half million by 1921, and its writ over land more than doubled as well, from 137,000 square kilometres to 304,000 square kilometres. It was a remarkable success, and probably the most striking in the post-war era, which served to demonstrate firsthand the potential benefits of association with the Allied camp, mixed of course with a bit of healthy opportunism.
The Serb appearance, although brief, had left a much better impression on the Allies than Bratianu's lengthy deliberations, and this was underlined by Woodrow Wilson's recognition of the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes on the 5th of February, while he spent the next several months avoiding Bratianu and would refrain from actually meeting him at all. The other Allied powers followed suit in recognising the Yugoslavs, which only served to ratchet up the tension in the Allied camp because Vittorio Orlando started to become concerned that Italy's plans for the Croatian port of Fiume in particular were destined to go up in smoke. These problems would all resurface in time, but for now, I'd like to briefly examine something of a side note before we look at the Czech situation. It is hardly surprising that, considering the urgency and passion with which the Eastern European delegates made their case, a degree of exaggeration and embellishment would result. Interestingly, this tactic of emphasising or underrating a certain ethnicity in a bid to gain land rights was extended to the propaganda war which map creation represented. Isaiah Bowman, one of the American delegation's chief technical experts, explained the situation thusly. Each one of the Central European nationalities had its own bag full of statistical and cartographical tricks. When statistics failed, use was made of maps in particular. It would take a huge monograph to contain an analysis of all the types of map forgeries that the war and the peace conference called forth. A new instrument was discovered, the map language. A map was as good as a brilliant poster, and just being a map made it respectable, authentic. A perverted map was a lifebelt to many a floundering argument. It was in the Balkans that the use of this process reached its most brilliant climax. If a map in the wrong hands could cause problems, then imagine what problems a combination of biased map makers and unscrupulous statesmen might cause. When faced with all this information, who could you possibly trust to give you the actual facts? Taking one example of how this bias could manifest itself, we need look no further than France's efforts to clarify the Eastern European situation with their so-called Study Committee, a body set up during the war to prepare guidelines for the organisation of peace and, in particular, the demarcation of borders. This comité was one of many think tanks established in France during the war, as Frenchmen looked towards the peace and imagined life after conflict. The comité was busy from an early stage, but its workload predictably increased a great deal in the final year of the war, when its judgments were most badly needed. The comité ensured it was fit for purpose, through its employment of expert cartographers, historians and statisticians, to survey and conclude on the claims made by the varied eastern delegations. One case which France's comité was tasked with demystifying was Romania, and the question of whether Bucharest was justified in laying claim to so much land. Tasked with this, the comité instructed their best and brightest expert, the geographer and cartographer, Emmanuel de Marton, to get to the bottom of it all. Emmanuel de Marton was said to be a consummate professional, with de Marton himself declaring his intention only to establish the incontestable facts that he encountered in his survey of the Romanian situation. Even de Marton's student got in on the action, proclaiming that his mentor was possessing of a total objectivity without regard to his friendship for some people or another. And yet, and yet, Emmanuel de Marton's bias does nonetheless shine through in some fascinating ways. So, to recap, the Comité was a French state body, and it could therefore be expected to serve French national interests. 
It was believed at this time in early spring 1919 that a strong set of Eastern European states would best serve the purpose of insulating Germany, defending against the spread of Bolshevism and enhancing French economic prospects. You remember I mentioned it before, the cordon sanitaire. For that to happen, one required a sturdy Romania, and to get a sturdy Romania, you had to make your case as strong as possible via your maps, without allowing your agenda to show itself too obviously. But how could a cartographer do such a thing? How could they fudge the case made by a specific state to make it look stronger and thereby help France when that strong state was set up? Well, this is where things get really interesting, history friends. At least, for me, they do. You see, Emmanuel de Martin embraced the alarmingly simple tactic of using the colour red when delineating where Romanian claims could be justified, or where ethnic Romanians lived. Why the colour red? Well, in comparison to the other deliberately drab colours that de Martin was using for his map, weak greys, vague greens and light purples, the Romanian red immediately stood out and drew the eye. This subtle act of drawing the eye to the Romanian case first could have the effect of tipping the scales in favour of the Romanian claims. If the vibrancy in his colour didn't sell his message though, Emmanuel de Martin drove the message home further with the fact that the map was labelled Distribution of Nationalities in Regions Dominated by Romanians, a title which was far from neutral in its insinuations, but which was also strangely acceptable at the same time. For effect, Emmanuel de Martin added in a colour to link the important rivers with nearby mountains, important grazing land with mining regions, etc., to give the appearance of a naturally connected set of natural landmarks, which nobody could reasonably agree with if they wanted to not go against nature. If that wasn't enough, de Martin employed a trick when displaying the urban areas of this new Romania. The towns where a majority German or Hungarian population resided, were submerged by the use of red again to represent Romanian majorities in the wider districts or regions. The visual effect was that the urban centres appeared less important than the regions they existed within, and a less determined or less studious observer might not look much further than the surface impression, particularly when, as de Martin well knew, would-be inspectors would have hundreds of other maps and documents to peruse in their time. We of course don't have time to examine every such example where a French, British, Italian or American mapmaker took a shine to a specific nationality for his nation's interests, but we can rest assured that it did happen. This example here, given by Giles Palski for the International Journal for the History of Cartography, also known as Imago Mundi, represents merely one case, but I felt it would be useful to show you guys that even on the apparently innocent state bodies where you presume that professionalism would take hold, bias and vested interests permeated what needed to be done. And these emotions, these self-interests, these aims, had a way of making themselves felt which is both surprising and often interesting to us looking back. To change back to our Czech examination, in a diary entry on the 13th of December 1918, Stephen Bunsal, that American journalist and diplomat whom we met earlier in the episode, recorded his feelings on the news that a new Czech state had been carved out of Eastern Europe. Bunsal showed himself remarkably well informed of Czech history, even referencing the Battle of White Mountain in 1620 at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, which occasioned the collapse of Frederick V's cause and marked the beginning of Bohemia's total sublocation to the Habsburgs. 
Bunsal wrote, World affairs, and these are what should be grossing our attention, have taken a distinct turn in a new direction in the last week. In fact, it might even be said that they have gone into reverse. For days, we have stood at the beer of fallen empires, or investigated the murder of mighty czars. We have witnessed the dethronement of kings and the flight of princesses. But today, a new ship of state is launched and has put to sea in the stormy waters of Central Europe. Czechoslovakia emerges from the maelstrom of war, and her chief magistrate is in Paris to receive the fraternal accolade of the leaders of world democracy. When the Bohemian peasant cohorts were smashed by the feudal lords in the 17th century at the White Mountain, those who survived swore a mighty oath. We shall live again, we shall come back, and here they are, and I should say that they are very much alive. Of course, in our midst, there are many soothsayers, and, as is the matter of their craft, many and varied are the prophecies they pronounce. Some say this new republic that swims into our ken, out of the smoke of battle, will prove a bulwark against the prolific German horde and its drangnack Austin. Others find it no more valuable than a prop gun against siege artillery, and many, very many, say that soon, very soon, it will become a satellite to the great Slav power in its new incarnation that it is destined to disappear in the whale's jaw, as does the unwary minnow. Bunsal's contribution is valuable, especially since Edward House was unusually silent in his diary regarding the progress of the East European negotiations in the first week of February 1919. This was because House was preoccupied with the establishment of a covenant for the League of Nations, and with the negotiations that preceded the founding of that body in a form which Woodrow Wilson would approve of. By the 6th of February, though he had said little about Eastern Europe, House was positive about the pace of progress between himself and those that desired the establishment of a prompt constitution for the League of Nations. Typically though, while appreciative of the progress, House couldn't resist, he just couldn't resist, telling his diary how he could have done it all better. The General Peace Conference is going better and things are being done. However, there has been a lamentable waste of time, and even now there is no organisation, and matters are not being expedited in the way that they should. One of the things that should have been done at the beginning was the formation of a plan by which an early peace could be made with Germany. Certain fundamental things should have been in the programme, and these should have been threshed out, and then the General Peace Conference, which will include the Central Powers, should have been called. If I had had my way, there would have been no halt after the armistice on the 11th of November, and by now the world would have been legally and normally at peace. It seems to me a tragedy to have wasted so footlessly all of these precious weeks. If a preliminary peace had been made on broad general lines, the making of the final peace could have run over a long period without hurt. The preliminary peace should have included four points, the army and navy terms, Reparations on a broad delineation of boundaries, i.e. that not more than so much should be taken. The reparations should have been fixed at a sum which the bankers of the world would have been willing to underwrite, but not more. If this had been done, the Allies would be able to get their reparations adjustment almost at once. That both House and Bunsal were preoccupied by their tasks going on at the same time, serves as a reminder, as if we needed one, that there was a lot going on in the Paris Peace Conference by this point, too much indeed for one figure to devote his attention to it by himself. This makes it all the more incredible that Wilson was so reluctant to delegate, and that he sat on all these meetings, where a reduction in his workload would certainly have benefited him. Wilson overworked himself even at this early stage, because he just did not believe that he could rely on anyone else to speak for his interests and for his vision. 
It probably would have helped if he could summarise that vision more concisely into a formula which people could understand. Nonetheless, the Czech case was represented before the Supreme Council on the 5th of February, this being after the Romanian effort on the 31st of January and 1st of February, and the more impressive Greek effort on the 3rd and 4th of February. The Supreme Council was evidently booked out when it came to Eastern representatives making their case, but these cases would have to be heard if some kind of compromise was to be reached. Nicholson could not say much positive things about Edward Benesch's performance. Benesch begins at 3 and ends at 6.30, Nicholson wrote in his diary. A lengthy and exacting performance. He dwelt too long on minor points, and after all these viva voces are pure farce. I must say that Clemenceau is extremely rude to the small powers, but then he is extremely rude to the big powers also. This scant attention which Nicholson granted Benesch's urgent appeals tells us that the veteran British Foreign Office clerk found the Czech performance largely forgettable, despite the fact that it lasted three and a half hours. Unfortunately for Benesch, Nicholson seems even less impressed with him than he was with Ioan Bratianu, while he could not stand that Romanian leader, at least his loathing for him made the Romanian presentation interesting. The minutes for the Supreme Council on the 5th of February, when Benesch gave his speech, record more than 10 pages of dialogue, as Benesch hit on several pressing issues for Czech statesmen, including the country's territorial claims, its four provinces and population, the light of history in which the Czechs operated, the exposed nature of the country, the German element in Bohemia, the economic arguments which favoured Czech independence, the problem of Tetchen, the adjustment of the country's borders, the Slovakian issue, several frontier issues along the Danube, with Hungary, with Yugoslavia, with Romania, the incorporation of Romanians from the Ukraine, communication through to the Adriatic, and finally, most strikingly, the idea that a land corridor be established to link the Czech and Yugoslav states by land and bolster one another's security. It was, as you can see, a long list, and Benesch's previous popularity did not much help ease the mental burden caused by the sheer duration of his presentation. It is also worth considering that many present, including Nicholson, may have been simply fatigued by this point, given as this was the fourth presentation in less than a week from an Eastern power talking about its problems, which must have seemed so distant and unimportant when compared to the more immediate task of forging a peace with Germany, hammering out reparations or deciding on what form the League of Nations would take. It was a disappointing reception for Benesch and for Thomas Masaryk, his partner, who had represented the Czech case for so many years in Paris. Neither man lost heart, though. Both perhaps realised that although they hadn't been given the greatest of receptions, their claims were for the most part uncontentious and didn't hamper the plans of the Allies. Indeed, the Czech plans actually helped to tidy up much of the eastern regions, and all under a nice democratic bow with equal rights for all those powers under its writ. The tacit allied approval for Czech plans was demonstrated in the virtual idleness of the Czech Commission, set up with a similar purpose to all the other commissions in the Paris Peace Conference, that is, to sort out those people's claims. The Czech Commission was wound down by the first week of March, having only been in existence for less than a month, because there was simply nothing left for it to do after it achieved its official ends so quickly. Some trends are worth noting from the experience of the Czech Commission, though. The first is the creeping trend of private Anglo-American cooperation, which was arranged behind closed doors, and which helped them to smooth over the cracks before they even saw the light of day, 
speeding up the resolution process as they went. The second was the appointment by the British of a man who knew virtually nothing about the Czechs to speak as their representative on the Czech Commission. This man was an Australian by the name of Sir Thomas Cook. Nicholson records having to bring him up to speed through crash courses in Czech history and negotiation techniques. Evidently, the British were scraping the barrel somewhat when it came to finding people to staff these innumerable commissions. Or maybe they just gave Thomas Cook the job because they didn't really care about the Czechs all that much. Finally, perhaps the commission's only difficulty was the Slovak-Hungarian border, a symptom of the fact that the eastern border along the Danube was historically contentious and it contained few if any defining features. The commission did its best and it granted communities which were of mixed Slovak and Hungarian nationality to the Czech state most of the time. This was a policy which received increasing support as Hungary appeared to descend into revolution. Although Benesch had not struck magic on the 5th of February then, in the weeks that followed he did impress, and he told the Czech Commission that the Czech government would provide equal, democratic opportunities for all. Yes, even to those 3 million Sudeten Germans that seemed to stick out like a sore thumb. Masaryk had long desired the incorporation of these Germans, not despite the new German state, but because of the strategic importance of the Sudeten mountain ranges for Czech security. As Thomas Masaryk told Stephen Bunsal in mid-December 1918, The Sudeten Hills, said Masaryk, afford to us Czechs the only defensible frontier against our formidable and aggressive neighbour. A division of the territory in dispute is also far from practical. The three million Germans do not represent a solid block which could be more easily dealt with. They are widely scattered, and in many of the districts which they have hitherto dominated are to be found an almost equal number of Czechs. It was prophetic indeed that Masaryk should worry about the implications of these Sudeten Germans, in addition to the concern that the Sudeten land afforded the Czech state its only defensive line. Those aware of their pre-World War II history will know that once the Sudeten land was handed over to Hitler, he was able to overrun the country within months by spring 1939, and all without declaring war. The formidable defensive fortifications which had been established in the preceding years in the Sudeten Mountains had all been for naught, formidable though they were, and just as Masaryk had feared, the Nazis were able to roll through the flat Czech countryside with relative ease and speed once that great obstacle had been neutralised with diplomacy. To avoid this nightmarish scenario and to protect the Sudeten holdings, Masaryk believed emphatically that Woodrow Wilson's contribution would be key. As he told Stephen Bunsal the day Wilson had arrived in Paris, There are rough places in the road ahead of us that cannot and should not be denied, but all will be well if we keep to the covenant of fair dealing which, as you know, the American president is bringing with him. It would also be well if, in a sense, we could forget the wrongs and sufferings of the past. Not entirely, perhaps, for they must serve as reminders of the dangers that await us, but we must not let these ancient wrongs rankle in our memory or shape our course. The positivity and maturity within this statement was rewarded, even if some elements of it were to be disappointed. Thankfully for the Czech duo, their envisioned state would rise up amidst a strong current of Allied support. Notwithstanding the unimpressive monologue provided by Benesch on the 5th of February, the Czech experience of the Paris Peace Conference was perhaps one of the most positive and encouraging, and arguably the most successful as well. 
Thanks to the efforts of those two men and the receptive mood of the Allies, most of the time the Czech Commission blessed the creation of this curiously composed, tadpole-shaped state at the crossroads of the continent, brimming with history, culture, ideas and people who were neither Czech nor Slovak, the future of the state would largely depend upon its allies and upon its rivals. The interwar period thus provided the challenge, to balance the new jealousies and disappointments of their neighbours with the potential harmony that could be found within this new democratic state. Peace abroad and cooperation at home. It seemed like a reasonable, double-headed mission, yet it was to fail under a cloud of infamy, as the friends the Czechs thought they had would in time abandon them one by one. So within the last couple of episodes, we've examined the establishment and crystallising of new nation-states to the east, which identified with the Allied cause, and who wanted desperately to avail of the spoils which would be accrued to the winning side. Hopefully now you can grasp not just some of the content, but also the sheer amount of busy work and exhaustive detail which the Allied representatives were forced to encounter. Whether it was the Poles, Czechs, Romanians or Yugoslavs, a century ago, the establishment of their new states and the alignment of these state leaders with their long-held dreams took up a great deal of time and energy at the Paris Peace Conference. All the while, the cynical or anxious delegates argued that these activities were all distractions from the one activity which truly mattered, the conclusion of a proper peace treaty with Germany. On the 6th of February 1919, this process was made a touch easier with the proclamation of the Weimar Republic. At least the Allies now knew what kind of Germany they were dealing with. A republic, democratic and left-leaning in outlook, and ready for peace. But was it truly so simple? Subsequent events were to prove that peace with Germany was a more elusive dream than the greatest of Romanian kingdoms, the largest of Serb superstates, or the most romantic Bohemian republics. Yet, somehow, some way, a final peace would have to be found. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 